Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are learning the second portion of Parshat Naso today. Today we will be learning a brief section at the beginning of chapter 5, from the first verse till the tenth verse. Short number of verses, but a lot of information. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Tzavet b'nei Yisrael v'yishalachu min ha-machane kol tzarua v'chol zav v'chol tamela nafesh. Then Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they shall send away from the camp every tsarua, which is sometimes translated as leper, but not necessarily so. Probably tsara'at is an independent, untranslatable term. V'chol zav, anyone having a discharge, but not any discharge, a specific discharge as described in Sefer Vaikra, Vichol Tamela Nafesh, and anyone who is uh, defiled because of Tumat Med, because of a dead person. As opposed to the two former, Tsarua and Zav, Tamela Nafesh is a Tumah which we have not yet learned about and will only actually learn about in the continuation of Sefer Bemidbar. Mi Zachar ad Nekeva Tishalehu, El Mihutz la Machane Tishalehum. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. The fact that God dwells within the camp is what is demanding this sending away of the impure people. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp, just as Hashem had spoken to Moshe, thus the sons of Israel did. So we have read the first four psukim in this chapter, and we will pause here to explain. The root word, shalach shin to send away, is mentioned four times in this section. The root, tameh, tet mem aleph, is only mentioned twice, but if we add also the tsarua and the zav, two additional tameim, an impure people, we reach for as well. It's important to note that tum'ah, impurity, does not work with a place of holiness where God dwells. This is something that we've already learned in Sefer Vayikra, at the end of Parsha Tazura, the Torah states, Vizartem et b'nei Yisrael mitumatam, warn b'nei Yisrael, from their impurities, and they shall not die from their impurities, when they defile my dwelling place that is within them, the mishkan. In other words, the, the, the warning is to not defile the mishkan. It's not necessarily negative to be impure. It's easy to point fingers at the sins of the Mitzorah based on Parshat Mitzorah itself, which we've already learned in Sefer Vayikra, and based on the occurrences of Tzorah throughout the Tanakh. But the other Tumot are a little bit harder to point to a some sort of sin. Tumat Med seems to be very legitimate. People who bury the dead, people who attend funeral, or, funerals, people who wash the body. The Zav and the Nida... Certainly the Oledet seem to be tumot that stem from life cycles and not necessarily from sin. But all these occurrences apparently do not allow us to be in the Mishkan or in the Mikdash, but they do not relate to sin. 
Here, too, the Torah doesn't speak about any sin. It speaks about an impurity, tzarat, zav, and tumat met, and it not belonging in the camp in which God dwells. One note of opposition is the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra comments that this section is juxtaposed to the following section, which relates to theft and sin, in order to tell us that the Mitzorah and the Zav are also sinners. However, the Ibn Ezra does not mention Tumat Met, the impurity stemming from a dead person, and for good reason, as it would be a little bit more difficult to relate Tumat Met to a sin. That was by way of introduction to the actual discussion of Tumah. But now we get into the nitty-gritty of the laws that were said here. Rashi explains to us that there were three camps within the larger camp. There is the courtyard of the Mishkan, which is called the Machanesh Shechina, the, 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 the camp of God's dwelling. And then there is the camp of the Levim. And finally, from outside the camp of Levim till the end of where B'nai Israel dwelled, is called Machane Israel, is the camp of Israel. Rashi continues and says, as we have the three camps, we also have three laws relating to the uh, impure people. The Tsarua, the Mitzorah, is sent outside all three of those camps. The Zav is allowed in the Machane Israel, but he's sent out from the two Machanot, the camp of the Shekhinah and the camp of the Levim, and the Tamela Nefesh, one who is impure from a dead person, is allowed even to be in the Machane of the Levim, but is not allowed to be in the Machane Shekhinah, which we said is the courtyard of the Mishkan. And Rashi concludes by saying, this is all learned from Chazal in Masechet Psachim. Alluding to, perhaps, the fact that this cannot be read in our verses themselves at all. The Rambam mirrors what Rashi says in Hilchot Biat Mikdash, the laws that pertain to entering the, the Mikdash. The Rambam states that there is a mitzvah to send all impure people from the Mikdash, quoting the Psukim here in our parasha. But the Rambam asks, it appears that the Mitzorah and the Zav and the Tamemet should all be banished to the same place because the, the Psukim do not differentiate between them. And then he goes on to explain why to come to the same conclusion as Rashi that the Mitzorah is outside of the city entirely, outside of the city of Yerushalayim and the Zav is outside of Har Habayit and finally, the, but not only the Zav, the Zav and the Zavot, the Nidot, the, all these different Tumot, the ch- woman after childbirth, they are outside of Harabait, and the Tamemet is actually allowed to be in Harabait, but he's outside of the Chayil and the Azara in, uh, in the Beit HaMikdash. So both Rashi and the Rambam echo the same explanations based on Torah Shebel Peh, that each Tumah, depending on the severity of the Tumah, was kept out of a different section in the camp. But, as we mentioned, the Ramam implies that the simple pshat of the psukim of our verses, if not for the drashot of the Chachamim, is that the Tmeim mentioned in our psukim were sent out equally. Is it possible to posit that in regular halachic life, when the Kedusha is in the Mikdash, that different tumot demand different le- levels of distance. But when God dwells among B'nai Israel, like, we, like he did in the Midbar, this unique circumstance 
demands that certain tumot were not allowed in any part of the Machaneh at all? Let's look at the examples that are mentioned in the Torah, Tsarua, Zav, and Tamemet. Three examples. There are many more types of tumot, as we learned in Sefer Vayikra. The Ibn Ezra claims that what is common to these three types of tumot is that they are all impure for seven days, and they transfer tumah to others. What about a nida, a woman who's menstruating, a yoledet, a woman who's given birth? They are also impure for seven days and transfer their impurity to others. They're not mentioned in these psukim. At least with regard to Nida, the woman menstruating, the Ibn Ezra explicitly writes that she is included. Presumably, this is in the category of the Zav, and that might include a Yoledet, a woman after childbirth as well, though this is not mentioned by the Ibn Ezra. This is not a simple assumption, as the Zav's impurity is more demanding and more strict than the Nida's. The Nida brings no korban, no offering, as opposed to the Zav. The Zav uniquely needs to immerse in a spring in spring water. A mikvah is insufficient for him. It certainly does not include a Baal Keri, one who emits semen, who is impure for only one day. And this is explicitly stated by the Ibn Ezra. As a halachic aside, we'll just mention that there's an interesting halachic discussion per se about whether a Baal Keri is allowed to go up to Harabait. The Rambam also doesn't mention the Baal Keri, but common practice is to be stringent like the Baalea Tosafot and the simple understanding of the Gemara and Masechet Psachim that relate these halachot to a Baal Keri as well, and therefore a Baal Keri who goes up to Harabait does immerse in the mikvah before going up to Harabait. The Rambam certainly had a more expansive view and saw the, the three examples mentioned in the Torah as archetypes, as examples of, a more, of more expansive categories, as he mentions, Nida, Yoledet, alongside the Zav, perhaps as a result of the warning at the end of Parshat Mitzorah, which we already mentioned, that the Parshat Mitzorah says that all the Tmeim should not go into the Mishkan. However, sending out Tmeim from the Machaneh might create difficult problems for the normal functions of a family. Physical relations between husband and wife will make both of them Tmeim, impure, as we learned at the end of Parshat Mitzorah in Sefer Vayikra, and potentially demand that they leave the Machaneh, depending on how we understand this commandment. Childbirth, menstruation would potentially demand a mother to leave too. In Pshat, the simple understanding of the psukim without Chazal's interpretation, sending out from the Machaneh does not differentiate between different parts of the camp. Rather, the Tameh is banished from the entire camp, an expansive and stringent view. On the other hand, in the simple reading, it also limits the list of impure to those three, the Tzmitzorah, the Zav, and the Tamemet. These are unusual occurrences that do not affect everyday life, and therefore a husband and a wife, a mother post-childbirth or in menstruation, would not be banished from the Machaneh, from the camp, and this is a more limited and lenient view that counters the more expansive extent of the expulsion. On the other hand, Chazal expanded the list of Tme'im to include all impure, or almost all of them, even those relating to everyday life, and viewed the three mentioned in the Psukim as examples or archetypes. In order to overcome the practical difficulties of the normal functioning of a household, they limit the expulsion and differentiate it between the different levels of Tumah and how far one is banished, 
the three machanot, we said, machane shechina, machane levia, machane Israel. Only the Mitzorah is banished from his house, all the rest may be at home, but are banished only from the Mikdash and its surroundings. So perhaps there are two models. The Pshat represents what actually took place in the wilderness. The relevant Tme'im that we mentioned, Mitzorah, Zav, and Tamemet, were banished entirely from the camp because it is a, macha, a camp in which God dwells. The Torah, Shebel Peh, represented by Rashi and Rambam, represent the reality in the Mikdash, in which God dwells in the Mikdash, but not in the entire Machaneh, as he did in the wilderness. And that reality is sufficient to keep the impure people out of the Mikdash and its surroundings, but allow them to dwell amongst the people. We will now move on to verse 5. Vaydaber Adonai al Moshe Lemor, Daber al Bnei Israel, Ish o Isha ki asu miko hatot adam lim al ma'al badonai, ve'ashema hanefesh hahi. Then Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any kind, any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against Hashem, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make the restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to Hashem for the priest, besides the ram of atonement, by which atonement is made for him. Just by reading, we see that the root Asham, Aleph, Shin, Mem, appears five times in three verses very prominently. We are discussing in these psukim a korban Asham, a guilt offering. We know in Torah Shabbat that there are five types of korban Asham. There is Asham Gzelot, theft, Mi'ilot, we'll explain, Shifcha Harufa, learned in the 19th chapter of Sefer Vayikra, Nazir, and Asham Talui. Four of them we've already learned in Sefer Vayikra, and the fifth, Asham Nazir, will be mentioned in the continuation of this parasha. So we've covered all five, four in Vayikra, five is later on in, in, in our parasha. Which is mentioned here, and why then is it repeated? The fact that one-fifth is mentioned narrows it down to two of the four. Asham Gzelot, the theft, and Asham Mi'ilot have a penalty of a fifth. As we said, Asham Gzelot, as its name implies, refers to, a th- to the theft. What is Asham Mi'ilot? Asham Mi'ilot refers to the sin of Mi'ilah, enjoying or benefiting from the holy property which is prohibited. In both cases, the original value taken or benefited is returned, plus one-fifth, plus the Asham offering, which is a ram. The Torah in our section does not seem to mention theft. On the contrary, it mentions the words, Limo ma'al bahashem, implying the sin of mi'ilah. But if we look back to Sefer Vayikra, the language of mi'ilah was mentioned both in the context of Asham mi'ilot and in the context of Asham Gzelot. 
why is Mila mentioned in the context of Asham Gzelot? If it's theft, it's theft. If it's Mila, it's Mila. Torah Shabal Peh understood that Asham Gzelot is not just stealing, but withholding property from another by taking a false oath in God's name. Uh, that's a slight correction. It's not only Torah Shabal Peh. It learns that it's actually explicitly in the Psukim in Sefer Vayikra. It actually talks explicitly about a false uh, a false oath, but Torah Shabal Peh expands that a false oath means swearing in God's name. By f- taking a false oath in God's name, one is monetarily benefiting from using God's names falsely, and therefore every Asham Gzelot has an element of Me'ilah. Therefore, the use of term Me'ilah in this section still doesn't prove whether we're talking about Asham Gzelot or Asham Me'ilot. However, the words Venatan La'asher Asham Lo, he shall give it to he who he has wronged, do help. He should give the money to the one he sinned against. In Me'ilah, the only one he has sinned against is God. There is no man against who to sin. However, in Asham Gzelot, while there is an element of sin against God, as we mentioned in the false oath, there is also, and perhaps primarily, a sin against a fellow man. That, that is what the verse seems to refer to. And therefore, we can conclude that we are talking about Asham Gzelot, we're talking about a case of theft. After identifying which Asham we're referring to, Asham Gzelot, now we can ask the question, why is this parasha repeated? We already learned this in Sefer Vaikra. Rashi says that the Torah in this, in our section here in Parashat Nassau, introduces two new laws. The one is the law of confession. Only one who confesses is allowed to atone with the additional fifth payment and the actual asham offering, not one who has witnesses testifying against him. This is not a penalty paying a fifth and bringing an offering. It's an atonement. It's an opportunity to atone. Therefore, one has to take responsibility in order to atone. The second additional law is that if one stole from a convert or a stranger who has no one to inherit him, assuming, of course, that he himself is no longer around, something that's not mentioned explicitly in the psukim, the money that must be paid is given to the Kohen. Rashi's answer, of course, begs the question, why were these details not mentioned in the original section in Sefer Vayikra? And why was this, con- was this specific context determined to be the correct one to teach these laws? Ramban makes a comment about the juxtaposition of the different sections we're learning. And he says, after demarcating the camp according to the families and tribes, this puts the Erevrav, those people who left Egypt with them, who are not part of B'nai Israel, at a disadvantage. They don't belong to any camp. And perhaps this invites a possibility of being mistreated. Therefore, the Torah stresses the prohibition of stealing, specifically within the context of a convert or a stranger. I'm specifically talking about a convert or a stranger because when the Torah talks about a ger, we're not always sure if it's referring to a ger in the sense of a convert or ger in the sense of a stranger. In any case, the Torah doesn't explicitly use the word ger here, and here this is just uh, 
understood from the Psukim, as Rashi explained. Why then, if we're talking about Hashem Gzelot, a theft uh, offering, why does the Torah avoid using the term Gezel, theft? According to the Ramban, the Torah specifically is stressing a, a ben adam l'chavero, an interpersonal commandment. Why is it not mentioned explicitly? In fact, by evoking a situation of theft in which there is no address to return the theft, as we mentioned, we have to assume that the convert stranger is dead, and as the Torah says, he has no goel, no inheritor. By 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 mentioning this case, the Torah has essentially neutralized the ben adam l'chaveiro, the interpersonal element. Yet, the Torah demands payment nonetheless. And the Torah commands that this payment go to God, and by proxy to the Kohen, who is God's representative. Perhaps one can suggest an opposite explanation to the Ramban. With the Machaneh, the camp forming around the Mishkan, we sense a heightened sense of connection to God, and a heightened fear of God and a higher standard in demand. Therefore, number one, we need to place the Levim around the Mishkan to keep those who don't belong out. Number two, we demanded that certain impure people must be banished from the camp. Number three, and this is our section, even a sin that seems to stem from interpersonal relations, theft, must be solved and atoned before God. The money stolen must not stay with the thief, even if there is no address to return the money to, if the thief is to achieve atonement. And the thief must achieve atonement if he is to dwell in God's holy camp. Therefore, these verses have a place specifically within our context, showing us that even sins between man and his, and a fe and his fellow man that have an element of sin before God must be atoned for if the man is going to dwell in God's proximity within God's holy camp. Finally, we reached the final two verses that we will read in today's section. The final verses are verse 9 and 10. Before we read them, we're just going to comment that the final two verses are extremely cryptic. They use many pronouns, and it's unclear who the verses are referring to. After stating that the money of the theft is returned to God and by proxy to the Kohen, the Torah goes on to say, As you've heard, I was stressing the word lo to him that comes up three times in our verses, and now we will translate. Also, every contribution, every truma, pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the Kohen, it becomes his. Who is this him? Who is this his? At times, it appears to be referring to the Kohen. At times, it refers to the non-Kohen who is giving the gifts. The commentators offer different opinions and varying explanations of these very difficult verses. 
because of our limited time and because of the limited scope, we're just going to mention Rashi, who's based on Chazal. But as I said, one who wants to look into this can see different opinions in the different commentaries. Rashi, based on Chazal, says the truma that's mentioned in verse 9 refers to Bikurim, the first fruit that are offered to God. And these first fruit that are offered to God are given to the Kohen, just like we read in the previous verse, that the money of the thief is given to God because there is no one to give it to, there's no address to pay it back to. Giving it to God means giving it to the Kohen. Verse 10 refers to the fact that while the final outcome is that we are obligated to give many gifts to the Kohen as God's representative, the giver of the gift, the non-Kohen, has a decision to make as to which Kohen to give it to. He has some sort of control over this while the final, the final address is the Kohen. That's what verse 10 is referring to. What can we say about these verses? We can, what we certainly can say about these verses that the centrality of the Kohen is stressed, however we understand these verses, and this completes the place of the Kohanim, which was given stress throughout these parshiot that we have read, beginning with Toldot, the counting of Aaron and his sons, continuing with the Kohanim overseeing the work of the uh, different families of the Levim, and finally the role of the Kohanim here, but the role of Kohanim will also spill over into the next parasha. Tomorrow we will be begin the parasha which discusses the Isha Sota, the wayward woman. And we will discuss those psukim in tomorrow's section.